trauma and mental health issues are continuing to rise in America. In fact, a study in 2021 showed us that as much as 30% of mental health challenges were associated with childhood trauma. Recently, the CDC reported that while males make up 49% of the population, they equate to nearly 80% of the suicides in America. In 2022 alone, there were an average of 130 suicides per day in the U.S. It seems that taking a multidisciplinary approach to your mental health issues seem to be the best overall strategy, and today's guest will show you how combining her training in psychology and yoga are helping people to heal and begin to thrive. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast. A podcast about disrupting your life to spark new evolution. Evolve your body, evolve your mind, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. And now it's time to disrupt. And with that, folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast. My co-host has the day off today, and uh, somewhere in the mountains of Utah, I am Steve Cutler. I'm really fortunate today to be joined by Ashley Iverson. Uh, Ashley Iverson has dedicated her life's work to guiding others out of the dark and into the light, or in other words, towards enlightenment. She personally developed a unique treatment modality which combines the ancient traditions of yoga with modern research and medicine, resulting in therapeutic yoga unlike anything ever done before. Ashley graduated from the University of Utah with a degree in psychology, business, and pre-med, while also training under some of the best yoga practitioners in the world. She serves as a member of the board of the Brain Injury Alliance of Utah, as well as the United States Board of Brain Injury. She has worked with numerous other governmental and nonprofit organizations that aim to create change in the mental health community. Ashley Iverson, thank you so much for joining us today. What, a, what an honor it is to have you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Now, we were talking before we started uh, recording the podcast that uh, in addition to your uh, education in psychology and business and pre-med, you're also working as uh, uh, potentially trying to become a candidate for PhD to further the research in the area that you're, uh, you're currently working in. Is that right? Yes. So um, the educational system has started to see the need for the mind-body blend as far as education and in a healthcare setting or a practitioner setting. So um, I was lucky enough to meet some colleagues that are a part of the rehabilitation science program, specifically here at the University of Utah. Um, currently, the rehabilitation science program is recreational therapy, occupational therapy, and there's one other that I'm just losing right now in my mind, but it's all body work, whereas clinical psychology is all mind work. So our rehabilitation science department hired in a clinical psychologist to create this mind-body blend. And I was someone that was brought to attention for that because I'm doing it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're a practitioner in it. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we found over the years is people who are practitioners and, and clinicians, they tend to be ahead of the curve because whatever you're practicing in your day-to-day -day life, whatever you're coaching, whatever you're teaching, you, you tend to just learn things and you know things, but yet it would be really nice to have some science to back up a lot of what you're putting out there. 
to help to prove the validity of it and and to make it so that other people that want to do things that you're doing it's easier for them because i know one of the things you and i have talked about before is what a challenge it was for you to get into the acute setting into hospitals teaching yoga uh and your story of overcoming obstacles and really proving the efficacy of what you do uh is a story in and of itself i mean that could be an entire podcast episode but for yeah. listeners can you talk through this process that you had to go through to get into the acute setting and um, what are what are the obstacles that you had to overcome to create this validity? So people said, okay, yoga girl, we we hear you, go do your thing. Because um, yeah. that's essentially what it turned out to be, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yoga girl. That is still what I'm referred to by so many people in the hospital, <laughs> which is fine with me. But um, yeah, it was a challenge. And honestly, to this day, it still is a challenge. So I've been teaching in the inpatient mental health setting for almost 12 years now. Um, and wow. in the initial, in the beginning, yeah, in the beginning, um, I was lucky enough to be still in my undergrad studying psychology and studying yoga and newly teaching yoga and seeing how much overlap there was between psychology and yoga history and philosophy. And then also as I turned to medicine and I became pre-med, seeing how much overlap there was in the science, like the biological arts and all these different studies. And so I went to one of the psychiatric hospitals here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I basically begged, literally begged them to let me teach yoga to the patients as a form of therapy. And I was turned down repeatedly. And just by luck one day, because this hospital was newer at the time and they didn't have very many therapists on their staff yet, they called me and they said, we have room in the schedule. We need a group. They call um, every treatment or like therapy in the hospital. It's called a group. So they said, we need groups filled and you can do yoga today and today only. <laughs> and I rushed down to the hospital and I taught yoga legit in the hallways of the hospital to the patients. Wow. Just like no yoga mats, wow. no nothing. It was just pure hospital hallway setting. <laughs> um, and it worked. It was very successful. So they invited me to do it again one more time in their words. And then after the second time, after the feedback from the patients, feedback from the clinical team, feedback from the therapist, um, the administration sat me down and they were like, we'll listen to you. <laughs> like, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> and um, we initially started it then, which was on a unit called chronic pain, which I would say okay. today has evolved into a basically a substance abuse detox unit or a like prescription pill type detox unit. But at the time it was chronic pain. So a lot of substance abuse with um, painkillers and benzos, and things like that. And then we have active duty military, which are separated by gender. So the initial beginning of this process of this program started with the chronic pain unit and the women's military. And well, then within two I, weeks, it was hospital wide. <laughs> how many times did you get told no along the way before they gave you this one <laughs> shot? This, this one, as Eminem says, you had yeah. one opportunity to yeah. put it all together. Right? I was told no for probably seven months straight. <laughs> and this was me asking probably once a week for seven months that I was told no. And you've been doing it now for 12 years. I think when you and I met, it was probably half a dozen years ago. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the first time we chatted, I was just blown away by uh, the impact that you were having with some of these stories 
uh, with people. And it just, uh, I mean, it really floored me. It was such a memorable conversation. Um, and it, what, a, what, a, what a cool story to think that you got told no so many times. You persisted, you got one opportunity and it turned into two and then it turned into something that now mm -hmm. you've got a dozen years under your belt. So you And started, we have um, multiple teachers. We just hired another full-time yoga therapist and we, wow, you know, the okay. whole hospital has yoga every day of the week. So it's evolved definitely into a full program and it's still expanding. New things are in the works that I'm not even allowed to talk about yet because they're so fresh, but yeah. That's really exciting. So sub substance abuse, uh, detoxing, mm -hmm. you mentioned military and then what were some of the other areas? Yeah, so there's all different um, elements to mental health. I think people always hear mental health and they just have one idea in their mind, but um, there's crisis. Crisis is like an acute stabilization. So someone that comes in, perhaps they're diagnosed with schizophrenia or any sort of schizoaffective disorder. You have psychosis disorders, even borderline personality or bipolar personality when people hear bipolar mm. without any sort of mental health experience or education or training they just imagine that your mood fluctuates but actual diagnosed bipolar can be extreme states of mania and depression so in depression they could basically be catatonic and in mania it's right. as if i mean a lot of them haven't slept for days on end like 10 or 12 days and so those are very severe cases so we have a crisis stabilization population um uh, active detox, so any substance that you can imagine, heroin, alcohol, prescription pills, any substance in the world. And then once they're actively detoxed, they can go to a rehab program, so the substance abuse re rehabilitation, and it's usually a minimum of 45 days inpatient. Um, then there's active duty military separated by gender and adolescence, so anyone 12 to 17 mm. with any history of mental health, whether it be um, childhood, I mean, they're in childhood, but infancy trauma, there's a lot of rape victims, there's a lot of um, behavioral concerns, um, and then just other mental health diagnoses, you know, you have autism and all these different, everything under the umbrella, and then geriatrics. So over, you know, 60, 75, years old that can no longer care for themselves is considered our geriatric unit. Okay. Yeah, that's everybody. And general population. Wow. So anyone who's 18 and up, as long as they can self-care would be considered general population. Okay. So you're, you're dealing with a wide variety uh, of, of people at many, many different stages. Uh, I read something some time ago that Salt Lake City is one of the highest per capita for prescription drug uh, abuse. Mm -hmm. And and that, uh, so I would imagine you see a lot of that uh, coming in. Um, now, all of these folks, they're, they're in this very, very difficult situation. And I'm sure they're coming in with a significant amount of limiting beliefs. You know, in our uh, episode 62, we, we walked our uh, listeners through some basic concepts around breaking through limiting beliefs you're in a totally different situation. I mean, the, the, the basic belief uh, breaking concept is not really where people are at at that stage because they're coming in, they're having a detox off of uh, the, the chemicals that they've been on, whether it's prescription or, or uh, you know, some other drugs, or they're in this traumatic situation. But I know you run into these strong, strong limiting beliefs, and you're probably running into them head first with people coming into you. 
what are some of the most common limiting beliefs that you're seeing people come and show up with? Well, before I touch on like a specific limiting belief, it's I think inpatient mental health is misunderstood in the sense that unless you've worked in it or experienced it yourself, you have no idea what that experience is like. And so, you know, just a quick idea of that, you're either brought to the hospital by a loved one or a family member or the police, or you're sent from an emergency room to our hospital or you self-admit, which is very rare. But those are the ways that people get there. When you come in, you go through an admissions process where you know you have your whole um, assessment, where they assess your medical background, your mental health background, everything about you, you have everything taken from you. So our patients cannot have anything that they could potentially harm themselves with. So nothing sharp, nothing, nothing at all they can only have two or three sets of clothes no phones no makeup no personal cosmetics no nothing like you're everything's taken away in our patients words it's worse than gel <laughs> when you go into inpatient mental health because safety is the number one priority so i mm -hmm. think anyone sitting in that very delicate intimate setting with themselves a limiting belief if at that point they really don't have a lot of beliefs i mean they're very Interesting. raw and exposed oh, and just okay. you really are in a state of of just complete vulnerability and most of your decision making has been taken away from you you have a set schedule from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed the time you eat meals everything is planned out you can only make phone calls certain times of the day you have active therapeutic groups all day in your schedule so a limiting belief i mean they're just looking for anything to believe in in that moment which is why yoga therapy is such a critical portion of their treatment. So very few are admitted by themselves. Very few are self-admitted. Most of them, they're coming in, mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. against their will? Yes, against their will. Yeah. They're ordered okay. to be there. So it's not just about a limiting belief that they might come into, or they may think, oh, this yoga thing is not really for me. They're very real, mm -hmm. they're very raw, they're already broken down. and. Mm -hmm. uh, what, how, how do you see these uh, these people showing up in this state? So when they come like into me, want... when they come, when they make it to yoga, so in the hospital, there's a yoga studio, um, their staff. So in the day, they have two staff members with them at all times, a nurse and a mental health technician. So one of those two people will bring them to the yoga room, the whole group, depending on what patient population it is. And the staff will stay in the yoga studio with them, but they kind of, stay to the corner to the side they're just there for support for me in case something goes wrong or somebody has a seizure or a panic attack or something like that but the environment is very controlled so by the time i get them to be honest with you their initial response to me is very like they want nothing to do with me they want nothing to do okay. with yoga they want nothing to do with anyone they are completely shut down so so they're very the first, closed off that that's kind of that initial yeah. right there the walls yeah. are up Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Arms How do you crossed, start to break down. those? Yeah. So what, do you, what do you do? I mean, that's a, that's a, almost like a hostile situation yeah. to go into, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. And you got to imagine it's not just a few people. It's anywhere from 10 to 20 in one group. So I have 20 okay. people looking at me like they hate me and I have to get them to do yoga. And then I have to change their, change their life with it in less than 60 minutes. <laughs> so my first Simple, response easy is, to yeah, exactly. So my first response is just to meet them where they're at. So when they come in, it's a simple 
how's your day going? How are you to the whole group? And I get very little response, maybe one or two responses. And sometimes it's even like, I hate this. I don't want to be here. I hate you. You're like, okay, cool. That's what we're starting with. So (laughs) then from there, you kind of move into, I'm not threatening is your next goal to show up in a sense of I'm here intrinsically. They can really read who's in this part of their care and who's there for a paycheck, who's there because it's a job and who's there because they intrinsically care and want to help people. And I think as yoga teachers, that's obviously a given. So that's the first element is I'm not a threat to you. I really care about you. I want you to have a good experience for the next hour. We're in this together. And so if I can express that, even just with those exact words, they're a little bit more open to me. And then the next step would be to educate them. What is yoga? Most people hear yoga and they imagine stretching, flexibility, some sort of competitive body contortioning, you know, and that alone is intimidating. And so my next step is to take away the threat of yoga. And it's like, I don't care what you do while you're in here. You can just lay down if that's what you need. I hope that's not what you do the whole time. But just you being here is enough for me. So it should be enough for you. You know, so we kind of slowly open their limiting belief or their idea to, am I capable of this? And then Mm, prove that they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a fascinating process to go through, to have so many people staring at you with these daggers, so closed off. Um, (laughs) You talked about earlier, you were talking about a lot of these people, they've got trauma, right? They've been through trauma. I remember reading a book and I can't remember off the top of my head, the author's name, but uh, it was a book that was gifted to me called How Yoga Works. And the author did a beautiful job of explaining this idea that trauma lives inside of the body. And when we have trauma, it, it, we feel it in different parts, right? We feel it in our, mm-hmm. in our heads, we feel it in our necks, our uh, heart, wherever we feel it, but trauma lives in the body. I would imagine you see that on a day-to-day basis that these people are coming in. What are some of the physical manifestations of this trauma that are showing up when they come into you? Yeah, so much. Um, Trauma. Trauma is a personal experience for each individual. And it's to say it lives in the body. I mean, our body, in my opinion, is just kind of this packaging that our whole life lives in. Right. And Mm -hmm. so when you talk about experience, yeah. When you talk about someone's life experience or memory that was in some way a disservice to them or a painful sense of suffering, right? A lot of yoga is this relationship with suffering. And so you take someone with trauma in their body Um, a lot of my population are rape victims. And, you know, as a rape victim, no matter at what point it was in your life, childhood or from childhood to adulthood or in adulthood, at what point that you sort of had your physical body or your packaging kind of taken away from you and it's no longer yours. I would say that's the biggest trauma I see. And so yoga being a physical practice to some degree, that's intimate. And it's a lot of yoga is very vulnerable. I mean, you're opening and creating space in areas of your body that are intimate, like your hips and your back and your chest and even your throat and your neck. So it's amazing to watch them experience creating space in a place that they've obviously had this traumatic experience take place and slowly see them open up to it. 
you know, another, another experience I see a lot is with the body, there's the right and the left. So a lot of times in yoga, you get two opportunities for an experience. And I teach them this, you know, we'll go through the first side, which is often the right side, whether it be yin postures that are floor based or more yang postures, which are standing based postures, or some people call them power postures. And you'll go through the right side of the body and you'll see the whole room do it so cautiously. They look at each other, they're looking around, they're unsure. There's so much insecurity in the space. And then we break away for a moment and we return to the same set of postures on the second side, on the left side. I remind them, you've been through this before. There's no surprises, you know what's coming. And then as we're in the middle of it, I remind them to acknowledge, look at the level of confidence, look at the change in the way that you're practicing the left versus the right. So right there is overcoming a sense of trauma or insecurity or a limiting belief. You get to go through an experience on one side, build a relationship with that experience, feel more secure, and then enter the left side with that opportunity of confidence and strength and power. And then you just take that and you build on it. But when it comes to trauma, even hips and lower back, I mean, I watch people come into postures and immediately jump out of them, not for reasons of pain, not a hip or a back or you know, a knee problem, they jump out of it because they're so vulnerable just to create space in the area of their body where they often close. Yeah. Yeah. What a great way of describing and building confidence. I love how you talked (laughs) about that, that this, you've already done this before. Maybe it was 30 seconds ago, Mm -hmm. but you've already done this before. So now you can go into this second Mm -hmm. side and you can do it with greater confidence. That's got to bring a significant amount of confidence and opening in, uh, your patients that you're working with, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see it in the room. You see, even when you give them permission to acknowledge their own confidence, I mean, that alone, everybody grows an inch taller in the room because they're like, oh yeah, yeah I do feel confident. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's it's a lot of it is awareness. That's the steps of yoga, right? The first step, be aware. What are we working with? What right. exists? What's real? Right. And as soon as you, I think, as a yoga teacher, we're just helping to bring awareness to what's existing you know a lot of times people who are in a state of suffering the suffering comes from the not knowing the obstacle and so if you can Mm -hmm. help guide someone's awareness to what's real you can bring a sense of enlightenment i love that there's a one of my favorite quotes and i'm probably going to butcher it but mark twain said something along the lines of that he he had known many troubles in his life and some of them actually happened And, you know, when we think about all of the challenges, a lot of them live in the mind. They don't, they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily, they haven't, they don't exist in the future. Uh, And building that confidence through this repetition and through this practice is an extremely powerful thing. Actually, I've, I've been in yoga classes. I've been in workshops where people have gone through the motions, through the, um, you know, through the, the movements. And at a certain point it triggers uh, an emotional opening, a, a, mm-hmm. a breakdown, and uh, you know they start crying or they start laughing or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and I've heard many people describe this as a way of that that emotion, that trauma, that challenge, that problem that they felt in a certain part of their body as they opened up, the wellspring just opened, and that you know now now they're much more open, and as you said, they're more aware. Do you see that happening often? Every single day. (laughs) I mean, I tell myself if I don't make 
at least one person cry in every class, I'm not doing my job. So <laughs> my goal is to get everybody into tears. Um, I would say the more interesting note on that aspect is the idea of what yoga is supposed to be. So these patients come in and they see yoga on the schedule and their first thought is just like, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And they start to build mm -hmm. a dialogue in their mind of how to get out of it. Similar to gym classes we did when we were kids. I don't want to run the mile, yeah. you know, <laughs> anything right. that makes right. us connect to our body. We're like, how do I get out of it as fast as possible? And they do the same thing um, with me when they come down into yoga and I get them to that moment, they almost feel like they're doing something wrong. They're like, wait, yoga is supposed to be either stretching and body work, or it's supposed to be relaxing and restorative and make me feel good. So why am I crying? That's not allowed. That's what their dialogue is. And they'll often come up and tell me, I cry in every yoga class. And I'm like, good, I want you to. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's, and that's where it comes in as being the teacher. It's so much more than a stretch. It's so much more than relaxing. It's about giving them an experience that ignites, hopefully, their desire to continue to live. I mean, when you talk about suicide, so many of the people I teach yoga with every day are suicidal or they're there from a suicide attempt. And a lot of that mm. comes from this desire for numbness or this desire to escape the suffering, right? And yoga is the process of building a relationship with the suffering in a way that you can serve yourself and your own existence to eradicate the suffering. And so- And breathe, breathe through I it, right? I mean, I know that someone, that's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, breathe, breathe through it's, the yeah, suffering. Yeah, breath Learn is to, a huge element. A relationship, yeah, yeah. Time, time, go back to I mean, real quick on this whole idea. Right? Yeah, 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 for sure. Talk a little bit about this. That's <laughs> fascinating to me that they say that they think that there's something wrong. Why do they think there's something wrong when they start mm -hmm. uh, having an emotional reaction? What, what, what is that? I've never heard that before. Yeah, because they're, I mean, also these, every person I work with is in such a fragile state that oftentimes in their mind, everything is wrong, right? Everything is not working. Oh, they ended up here. Okay. So everything's wrong. Okay. But then also, I think it's just the, I call it the westernized marketing scam of yoga. I mean, you have the whole world saying yoga is this, it's Lululemon pants, and it's standing in front of a mirror, maybe in a hot room looking super cute while you do something that a lot of other people can't do. I think that's yeah. what yoga is looked at from most people. Mm -hmm. And so when they come in, and all of a sudden, all of these emotions flood their body or they do something they didn't think they could do and they conquered it you know it's this whole emotional spectrum in the full 60 minutes they're going from feeling scared to feeling relaxed to feeling courageous to feeling embarrassed to feeling enlightened to feeling calm and then feeling open and exposed and vulnerable i mean every emotion is coming out in 60 minutes <laughs> through their body and yeah. so at, at what point would you not burst into tears? I mean, it's especially someone who maybe hasn't felt anything in a really long time, or if they felt anything, it was probably something they didn't really want to feel. And now they're feeling everything and being told that it's okay. And so it's just this whole entire breakdown. <laughs> I think um, what you're talking about is this wide array of emotions that people are having or excuse me, that people are feeling. And previously, if they were feeling emotion, it could have been tied to some sort of substance. 
Um, I've had friends that have been addicted to substances and uh, they were very numb in the rest of their life mm -hmm. unless they were going towards that substance because the substance, whether it was alcohol or drugs, was the only thing that was giving them, uh, I wouldn't even say a breadth of emotion, but it gave them more than one or two emotions that they felt. Mm -hmm. So I've got to imagine that this is a completely a novel experience for people to yeah. now start to feel these waves of emotions. What are some of the things that you're seeing change as they experience these emotions during your class? What's happening? What are what's changing inside? What's happening physically to them? What are you noticing? Yeah, um, I mean, I definitely notice that they start to have faith in themselves. They start to connect to their body. They start to release limiting beliefs, right? They start to do things they didn't think that they could. Uh, for example, I had a group of military patients a few weeks ago. I had been out of town for a little while and I came back from being out of town. And so none of the patients knew me because I hadn't been there for a few weeks. And like, obviously they responded very guarded on the first day that I was there. And the first three days that I spent with this particular group, I couldn't get them to engage. I couldn't get them to open up. Like they would just give up halfway through the class and lay down or they would mm. just refuse entirely. And I was just pulling teeth. I was like, what do I need to do? And then on the fourth day, they just came in trusting me and they were telling me, we want to learn this and we want to do that. And we want to do a hard class and all this stuff. And so I led them through one of my hardest classes and to watch their whole face light up at the end. I mean, they come up and just hug me and I'm like, we're not supposed to touch. So I have to be like, we can't hug, you know, you can stand over here and tell me about your experience. And they're just, you have 15 people telling you how phenomenal they feel and how excited they are to do it again and what they want to learn. And we ended up learning headstands the following week. So I took a group wow. of people in less than five classes from completely refusing and just wanting to sleep during the class to doing headstands. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just it's wild to see how fast that trust grew, not just with me, but with themselves. Cause on that first day, if I would have said we're learning headstands, I would have been burned at the stake. They would have been like that yoga teachers making yeah. us do stuff we can't do. And then I had a whole room of people standing on their head. <laughs> When a lack of confidence too, like you, you, like you mentioned, you're kind of easing them into it. So with this group, mm -hmm. there was a spark that happened after the third class. Is there a common spark that happens with individuals or with groups where you notice that, uh, okay, now they're over the hump and they're not as guarded. They're not as fearful. They're not as angry. Mm -hmm. They're not expressing as many negative emotions. Now they're much more open to it. Is there some sort of spark that you're seeing uh, that that's a consistent thing? Yeah, I would say probably on the third class is kind of the sweet spot. The first one okay. is purely introduction. So they're very, very held back. Um, the second one is I'll try this. And then the third one is this is amazing. I want to do this every day. That's kind of the process that I see sometimes with my general population. So again, that's 18 and up as long as they can self care and any mental health diagnoses from major depressive disorder, eating disorders, um, depression is anything you can imagine. It's just a general population of civilians. Um, they, I only have them maybe one or two classes because they're 
stay in the facility is shorter. Sometimes they're there for only one or two days. So in those ones, it's almost immediate. I can reach them almost immediately. And I don't know if it's because I show up a different way, knowing that I've got one shot (laughs) with them or, um, if just where they're at, I don't know if it's me or them, but that's the only population that I can see a massive life-changing transformation in just 60 minutes. With the military and the substance abuse, it takes that three-day-ish mark. Do you think it's because of more more uh, trauma? I mean, are they experiencing more of like a PTSD for what they've gone through or what is it that uh, keeps them guarded for longer? If I had to guess, it's that they're inpatient for longer. So they're there for generally a minimum of 30 days, whereas the general population, like I said, can be there for one or two days. The longest they're usually there is five to 10. And so I think it's in their own perspective that I'm in this program for this long, and it just takes almost a week to really get a lot of them to be present in the program. I think they have to cognitively digest the idea that they're going to be in this rehab facility for the next month whereas the general population knows that there's an end date they know they're getting out in 72 hours or 48 hours Mm. so maybe they're already a little bit more open to what's ahead of them because that finish line is closer that would be my theory and even those that are even those that are uh, in for 30 days they've already gone through the detox portion of their stay correct not always Sometimes they transfer from another facility. Sometimes they come in with uh, substance abuse, but they're not currently high or drunk or whatever it is. And so they just go straight into that substance abuse program. It just depends on what they're, they're there for specifically. If they're just there to detox, they go to the detox. It's an interesting thought. And I, that would be, you know, when we talk about research, that would be something I would be fascinated to learn over time because the power of the mind is, is, um, I mean, untapped, I think. And our perspective and the timelines that we give ourselves to achieve something uh, makes such a big difference. I mean, if we give Mm -hmm. ourselves 10 years to accomplish something, it'll take 10 years. If we give ourselves 10 months, it'll Mm -hmm. take 10 months. Yeah, that's an um, awesome way of looking at it. What an interesting thing that I would be fascinated to see if that uh, study or if that concept holds true in this in this particular setting. Okay, so your method, Ashley, is really about focusing on an interdisciplinary approach where you're combining modern psychology with this ancient practice of yoga. Can you walk our listeners through what's different about the process that you go through? Um, about my technique versus your typical yeah. studio technique. Right. Yeah. So my technique is it's unique in the sense that most people teaching yoga in a studio are teaching to people who chose to be there that day. So they can come in with an agenda. That teacher can come in and say, I'm going to teach this certain flow. I'm going to play this certain music or, you know, there it's their class in my world. It's the complete opposite. I have no idea what I'm walking into in any class. I can be walking into say a patient who was, active military and maybe lost their arms at combat. And now I have to teach a whole class without saying the word arm. Um, I can walk into a class that a certain patient has a certain trigger to high pitch sounds. And now I can't play any music with a certain tone in it. And I'm learning this the second I walk in the room. So I have no time to prepare anything ahead of time. I have to come in and meet the patients, greet the patients, see 
how many are male or female, what age range I'm dealing with, what level of, you know, activity they're capable of. I have to assess the whole space, the 10 to 20 people I have in there and decide what to do in the next 60 seconds in my own mind. <laughs> so that's one aspect that's very different. Um, my technique pressure. as far as that, I love it. To me, every class is just a blank canvas and then I just get to paint. Mm. But, um, they um so it's kind of looking at what what are they what do i think they're gonna feel capable of and safe with while still trying to get them to push their own boundaries um and so i i structure my classes on a level of one through five so the way that i refer it to the patients is i'll say i'm going to explain to you my level of one through five and you can tell me each of you are going to hold a finger up in the air telling me what level you're at so to some degree they get to choose a one is we spend the whole class lying on our backs and we do say eight different postures from the back so it's very yin um a level two oh, we go from yeah. lying down to seated to lying down a level three is from lying down to seated to standing to seated to lying down a four is all of the level three but they let me add in two moments of cardio of getting their heart rate up and a level five is them giving me permission to do whatever i want so it could include arm balances push-ups you know sun salutations it's them saying we trust you and we feel healthy and we can do whatever we want so i get kind of a general idea of where the room is at and then i i build it from there on a rare occasion everyone will say they want a level one or a level two but they're all physically capable of doing more than that and that's where i'll sit down and have a little talk with them about the yin and the yang and anxiety and depression and if they're all asking for a yin styled class Am I just giving them the opportunity to increase depression as lowering their energy even further? So should I be motivating them by doing a more gang styled class to bring their energy up? And on the other hand, if I walk into a room that's constantly asking for a level four or a level five, I'm asking them, am I adding to your anxiety, your anxious disassociative tendencies by allowing you to be distracted with the messy chaos of a level four and a five? Do you need to sit in stillness today? So as the teacher, I kind of have to have some play in what do I think is going to benefit them, but also meeting them where they're at. And I think that in most studio yoga, where is the teacher coming in with no idea whatsoever of what they're going to do yeah. or teach with? So there, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. That I, a couple of things I want to jump into, uh, and then I've got a few other notes I want to I want to come back to, but. Really, you know, you've got to teach whoever shows up where they show up. And yeah. that's fascinating to me to think about that if somebody lost an arm, you can't talk, you can't use the word arm because that might be triggering or the sound yeah. or anything like that. And so if I'm hearing you right, your process is all about showing up blank canvas and mm -hmm. saying, okay, I've got several tools in my tool belt that I'm going to utilize. First and foremost is I'm going to have people uh, tell me where, where are they at? you know, one to five. But one of the things, Ashley, that really stood out to me is when you talk about that you're providing a class that balances out what their needs are. And so I loved how you said, it. okay, if I, you're in a depressive state and we put you into more of a yin, uh, calming, relaxing, and you're on your, your back, that's going to bring your energy down. What you need is that yang style energy where we've got things moving. What a powerful thing to think about for our listeners that when they wake up every single day, because every day is going to be different. And yeah. if you're not in the hospital setting, in the acute space, 
but you are feeling depressed, if you are feeling anxious, just doing that practice as a, as a human being saying, where do I feel today? On what level am I feeling anxiety? What level am I feeling depressed? At what level of I, am I feeling whatever emotion it is? And then adapting your movement practice, your meditative practice, your psychological practice to that particular day. I absolutely love how you talk about that. Um, let's go to this. I want to come back to the question, or you, you brought up this idea of asking the group, you know, one through five, what are you guys ready for? Do you go off of what the consensus of the class is? I mean, if you've got two or three people that are saying, hey, we're a one and everybody else is uh, banging the drum for a five. I mean, how, how do you make that decision of what that looks like? Because in the group setting, that could be very difficult. Yeah, and it happens every day. Um, there's a few different factors I take into consideration. Depends on the units that I'm working with. For example, if my military guys come in and they're all like, we want a one or we want a two, I'll look at what their schedule was for the day. And I can see that, and I do this ahead of time or I know their schedule at this point. So on a day where they don't have any other physical activity in the whole day, and I know they've just been sitting in chairs the whole day in group, I'm gonna tell them that. I know that I'm your only physical activity. I'm sorry that a one or a two is not even an option. Or if there's <laughs> someone in the I group that. that is- <laughs> yeah. um, I'm standing up to you guys. <laughs> Oh, I do it all the time. But um, if there's someone in the group that's discharging that day and it's their last session with me, that's very important to them. They'll even pick an artist or they'll pick, you know, they'll kind of say, do this type of class that you did. And they'll want to experience it one more time because once they discharge, I never see them again. So at that point, I try to recruit the troops to be like, okay, we're supporting so-and-so today. We're doing what they requested. And they're like a family to each other. So oftentimes they'll support each other in that very sense. Cool. Um, on my general units, when I have a whole group asking for a one or a two and then one or two people asking for a four or five, at that point, I'll just assess if I feel like they're able to do a three and then I'll meet them there and I'll explain it to the group. I'm going to teach a three, but you are responsible for your own experience. You can subtract or add what you need to, to make it benefit you. If I'm teaching you something that potentially puts you at risk for an injury or something that you don't feel is right for your body, then subtract it, do something else that serves you and jump back in with the community when you can. But it's just kind of this balancing act of pleasing everybody. And a lot of it's just motivating people to try. So if I make them sound like it's going to be easy going in, they'll try it, even if I make it a little bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite things about yoga is that, um, and, and why I don't take any other class. Like I don't take cycling classes. I don't take weightlifting classes. I, I strength train on my own, but I don't like those mm -hmm. other classes because yoga is the one class where if I want to go in there and I want to go hard, I can go hard. If I want to go, something's bothering me, I can still just drop down into child's pose or, um, what, what's the corpse pose? I don't even know what the official name for it is, but that's my shavasana, favorite one. Just, yeah. Yeah. Shavasana. Where the you're names on are your back. Um, but I like, uh, I like the fact that you can adapt like that. And so it does give a little bit of flexibility. Um, I want to come back to something you just said, where you talked about that you assess the class and you are giving them feedback at the beginning as to what you think that they need based on their feedback uh, as well. But how, how are you assessing them? What does that look like? So I look at, let's say that I walk into a class that has eight people and 
two of them are in their early 20s, really fit, really active. Two of them are mid to late 60s, kind of like chronic health concerns that are obvious to the eye. Maybe one climbed down from a wheelchair onto a yoga mat. And then the other three are just, you know, maybe physically capable to do some standing stuff. So you just kind of see physically what's going on in the room. So in that instance, you know, let's say I have the one that climbed down from a wheelchair onto a yoga mat. And now I'm teaching that person a yoga class next to these early 20s active individuals. I mean, how do you teach a yoga class that's going to benefit all of those people at the same time? So for me, it's, are they capable of getting up to standing? If I feel safe bringing everyone in the room up to standing, it's part of the teaching. I'll teach, I'm going to bring you up to standing, the easiest yoga method. If that doesn't work for you, you are welcome to find your own way up to standing and meet us there. And then you give people that freedom to do it their own way. You don't have to do it the way that I'm offering it to you. And they'll try. And then as I'm teaching, say that person that climbed out of the wheelchair onto the yoga mat made their way up to standing, but I as a teacher feel uncomfortable with maybe what I'm teaching the rest of the room. I'm not going to discourage that patient to not try. I would just simply be there. (laughs) I would stand next to them and maybe at some point in the class, whisper directly to them, you can use me for support. And as I'm standing, they could put one hand on my shoulder and support themselves to do the standing postures. You know, Mm. as I'm teaching, if I see someone in the room struggling specifically, or I feel like they might be a fall risk or something like that, then I just do teach to the environment. So I would just continue to say, listen to your body more than you listen to me. If I'm teaching anything that doesn't feel right for you, you're welcome to find your way back down to the mat and take another option that feels better to your body. That's more supportive to your needs, you know, so you're just constantly giving them the right to choose what they're doing. And a lot more adaptability in a class like this because of the uh, mm-hmm. psychological, emotional trauma that they have in addition to maybe some physical uh, capacity issues that they're dealing with. So Ashley, as I'm, as I'm mm-hmm. listening to you and I'm kind of gathering what this process is, you're, you're asking the room, you're assessing the room, you're adapting mm-hmm. your, uh, you know, to their energy and what they need. There's a, there's a high degree of flexibility. Um, you can't come in with a planned yoga class, but there's also a a high level of education that you have here. Because as you talk about, and you're using the clinical terms uh, with the diagnoses that people are coming in with, there's a high degree of education that has to come into this because you've got to work with people where they're at. And it's not okay if I don't have the full education on each one of these um, psychological challenges or disorders because you could trigger somebody in a, in a very negative way, right? Yeah. For example, something that I hear yoga teachers say a lot that, that shouldn't be said, a lot of yoga teachers refer to twisting your body to be detoxing. And every time I hear a yoga teacher say this, I think, no. Okay. First of all, it's It's not, not. I mean, you talk about detoxing and there's so many, that word is used for so many different things, but in a clinical setting, especially Such a, horrible in world a substance abuse detox setting, you know, you yes. tell someone who has taken benzos for the last nine years based off an addiction to them because they are the most addictive substance. And then you tell them, well, if you lay on your back and twist, you're going to detox your body. 
you have just created such a dangerous situation for this patient, you know, because they believe, yeah. they trust yeah. you as the practitioner. They trust you as the person in the facility with a badge that can unlock the doors. They believe that you have some sense of, of higher yeah. knowing than they have. And so something like that, it's not detoxing, you know, and you can go in and, and teach them that, yeah, when you're twisting, you are applying pressure to your internal organs and, you know, internal organs and throughout their cellular tissues have a way of communicating with, with one another. And maybe they would release some sort of neurotransmitter or hormone or something like that, but it's not detoxing to the body. So right. things like that are very dangerous to be said. Um, and even I, just, I think that's important across it. the board. Yeah, I think yeah. it's important across the board that practitioners need to learn this stuff, even if you're not working in an acute space. I mean, I think mm -hmm. back years ago, this is probably two decades ago, I had a client come to me uh, that had injured uh, his back by working with a trainer, and he already had back mm -hmm. issues, but he came to me and I said, well, what did you do for your workout? And he explained it to me, and I said, well, that, that's your problem right there. You're doing a lot of um, back work. He goes, no, we were just doing arms. I said, you realize that as soon as you go into a curl, the first muscle that has to contract in order for yeah. you to do a curl is your deep erectors and multifidae mm -hmm. uh, that sit right along the spine. If your multifidus is, is firing, that's the way you don't fall over, right? Your glutes have yeah. to fire, your multifidus has to fire. You're gonna, you're, and so you're immediately activating your back. And this guy's eyes, you know, go wide open. And the trainer later came to me and said, um, you know, got tried to get into an argument with me that uh, arm training is not back training. And I said, well, you probably <laughs> need to take back specialist off of your resume because this is not, yeah. I mean, you're going to hurt people. And unfortunately, she did Honestly. For, for a long time. Yeah. And what you just said is one of the most important elements to any of this is just educating people. And, you know, I teach patients all the time about their body, but I'm not teaching them something that's my opinion or something I read on right. Instagram or something like that. Yeah. I'm teaching them something that I myself either learned in school and studied, or I found some peer reviewed research article that's like in depth, you know, telling me something it's, it's actual information, not an opinion. And when you teach people about their bodies, even another one that I often say to the patients when I'm motivating them on their own strength is I'll ask them, do muscles push or pull or do both? And you know, the whole room will kind of look at you and then they'll be like, they do both. And I'm like, really? Your muscles can push and pull? <laughs> and then once you just break it down in simple terms, I always use biceps and triceps. And I'm like, your muscles, their only job is to hold and move your bones around. I mean, obviously they play a part right. in body temperature and keeping everything inside and things like that. But sure. when you teach them that your muscles right. only pull and they move these other bones around and, and just the whole structure and anatomy to their body, I mean, their, their eyes do, they just light up and it's like, they finally get to have a comprehension of themselves, which gives them a sense of control of themselves. It's, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> It really is beautiful. I, I used to do the same thing when I would coach people, mm -hmm. I, I guess still do to a certain degree, but I don't do a lot of like in, uh, in-person training anymore, but I would teach the, the science of it. I would draw pictures out and say, this is what mm -hmm. ha is happening inside of your body right now. And my clients, uh, loved it because now they can see it. Now when they're working out, they understand it. We're not dealing with some sort of opinion or theory mm -hmm. or whatever. They have scientific proof mm -hmm. and scientific knowledge and they can get great results. Um, so Ashley, most mm -hmm. of the people that are our listeners today 
are not going to be in that acute setting. They're not going to be going through some sort of, uh, you know, uh, rehab or, or, or they're never going to be in your class, right? So for the listeners mm -hmm. that are uh, listening to you today, give, give some simple tips relative to your process of, of taking the psychology, taking the science that you've learned and practicing uh, this multidisciplinary approach. What, what would you tell some of our listeners that they can start doing right now to improve their overall health practice? Yeah, I think the number one, the first thing, the first thing that I would, I would say is practice being still. Practice being still. It's so difficult. It's so challenging, but that's where so many of our own answers within ourselves lie is the ability to resist our own urges, right? That's how you gain awareness. You can't constantly be trying to hide something or fix it, fade it, change it, run from it, go around it. But through stillness, you have to really build a relationship with what is, with what's existing. So whether it's seated in a chair, seated on the floor, lying on your back, whatever position, or maybe a yoga pose, a hip stretch or a hamstring stretch, like a seated forward fold, you know, really setting a timer or just putting on a song that you like, something that will help guide you through the experience of the stillness and make a commitment to it, whether it's two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, work your way up. But I would say the number one thing is practicing stillness. And I think a I lot of people that. think that that needs to be done in meditation, you know, and they're like, oh, I yep. have to sit right. in stillness with my back straight in the middle of a room with silence. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be that way. It maybe, maybe that's your practice, but you can personalize it to make it possible. So the first stillness is, is so stillness. many different things. Yeah. I, I love that. Mm -hmm. My, so my second daughter, she, um, she had to write a paper one day and she said, dad, do you want, can I read you my paper? I said, sure. And the paper, she starts telling this story about how her crazy dad, um, a few years before, took her up into the mountains and they went on a hike because she was having some trouble with some friends. And, and he sat her on a rock and they just looked out at the sunset and they just sat there in a still way. And this crazy dad just said, feel the rock, feel the air around you. Just be still and feel your emotions, but feel the energy that's coming up from everywhere. And it was so great because in the paper, she said, I had no idea what he was talking about until I did. And, yeah. you know, she started to learn what this concept of stillness was, uh, was teaching her and, you know, has, has applied that in many areas of life. I also love how you're talking about it, that it doesn't need to be in just some sort of still meditation practice. I actually focus and practice my stillness yeah. in my uh, cold baths. So when I'm jumping in to the mm -hmm. cold bath, and I've got all this ice sitting around me. I'll use music and I'll say, okay, today is a this song day. So it's going to be, you know, four minutes and 30 seconds that I'm going to be in the cold bath today because that's how long that sound song is. And as soon as it's over, I can pop up and I'm out. And that's a great way to be still. So in addition to being still, what's another practical tip that you could uh, give our listeners that, so that they can implement this multidisciplinary approach in their life? Yeah, I'm, as I'm answering this, I'm going to go and plug my phone in. So I'm going to turn my camera off for one second because it's giving me notifications good. that my battery's low. Um, All right. So another, another um, opportunity besides stillness. Um, I would say pushing yourself to a level of safe challenge, right? Whether it's okay. a low lunge or something that gives 
you the opportunity to challenge yourself outside of your own comfort zone, but in a safe setting. So in the practice of yoga, we do arm balances or headstands or things like that. Um, and that is where you start to kind of tap into positive psychology. So you're igniting this opportunity of possible risk or failure or injury or something. I mean, an arm balance, you're probably the worst thing that's going to happen is you might like bonk your nose on the floor or something like that, <laughs> but you're not going to have some detrimental injury most likely. But when you introduce right. the emotion of fear and then you either conquer it, you succeed, or even you fail and you're still okay you get this surge of neurotransmitters that are positive, right? You get serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, your brain just feels powerful. So I would recommend doing something physical in any sort of pose or posture that pushes you safely outside of your own comfort zone. It's such a great balance uh, to think yeah. about that relative to what people are doing on their phones and checking social media to get that oxytocin hit. Um, mm -hmm. That fear-induced activity, that challenge that you have to overcome, there's so many more. I mean, it, it's been proven that every time I attach my phone and I'm going to see if I got another like or another whatever, that mm -hmm. it's just, it's these little dopamine things, right? This little dopamine mm -hmm. hit over and over and over again. But when you do something that you're challenging your physical body, there are so many other hormones that are kicking in to give you a much more sustained positive feeling. So I absolutely love that. Uh, one last question in this, in this vein, Ashley, you know, I was, I was talking to a coaching client of mine recently, and I was reminding her that, Hey, everybody has a breaking point. You're either breaking down or you're breaking through. And what would you say to the person who is going through some sort of physical process? Maybe they're going through yoga um, and they just have that emotional breakthrough or emotional breakdown. What, what, what's your advice to them? as they're in it my advice is to to sit in whatever it is with no label i think that when we hit emotional breakthrough or breakdown we want to classify it because that makes it comprehensible or it's something that we suddenly can gain control over it again but i think the best thing to do is train our brain to just observe rather than to label, you know, it's not good or bad or right or wrong. It just is and acknowledge where and how it transforms in that moment. So it comes back to sort of being in stillness. But as you're, I mean, even in your day, when you have that moment of frustration or anger or out, you know, outburst or something like that, just observe it. Like, what does it feel like? Because we spend so much of our time rushing to the next thing to get through the breakthrough or get past it or move yeah. on with our time or our day. But instead, can we just be right there with it for what it is? I've never seen mother nature get angry about a, a, a rainstorm or wind <laughs> or apologize <gasps> about it, right? I mean, the violence yeah. in nature, the calmness in nature, there's never an excuse for it or there's never a, oh, I'm sorry. Like. It's very natural, and I think as human beings, we experience those emotions in the same way, and there shouldn't be any judgment there. Well, Ashley, we are coming up on our time, so final question that I've got for you. You know, at Evolve, we believe that uh, people evolve by stacking one simple habit on top of another. Uh, if you could wave your magic yoga wand and our listeners started right now on one habit, what would it be? On one habit? 
this is something I'm trying to do. <laughs> but every time you enter a new segment of your day or a new place to just pause, even if it's for the first five seconds, just enter that environment with yourself as you are and pause before you interact with it. It's a beautiful uh, thought because you're, you're infusing or you're weaving intention into every new moment of the day. Mm -hmm. Great answer. Love that. Well, folks, and on that uh, note, it is time for us to wrap up another Evolve podcast. I want to thank Ashley Iverson for joining us tonight and sharing a, a lot of insight and wisdom uh, about her multidisciplinary approach to psychology and yoga. Um, Ashley, I know that uh, you uh, people can follow you on Instagram or what's the best way for people to uh, see what you're up to and follow your personal evolution? Yeah, Instagram's a good one. I keep my Instagram private, so I just have to accept um, requests. I keep it private just because of the line of work that I am in. <laughs> but Instagram right. is probably the best way. I don't have a Facebook. I'm kind of off the grid on the social media scene. But yeah, that would be the best way. All right. Sounds good. And, uh, you know, I, for me, I, I love seeing when you do on your stories on uh, Instagram where you're sharing some of these, uh, you know, beautiful moments that people have shared with you as they've made these changes. It's always inspirational for me. Uh, so once again, Ashley Iverson, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And hey, folks, remember that it does take time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Podcast. If you like this episode, share it with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at evolve underscore cast and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve.